jazz. These kids and their jazz music. So scandalous. What was the last one of those? I think it was jazz. Then everyone was against rock. Is hip hop the last one? I think hip hop, like rap. It's been a while. Yeah. Well, I think when you look at it, you look at jazz, rock and roll, hip hop, mm-hmm. really, it's just white Americans being scared of black people. Oh, yeah. That's what that's all that was. Yikes. Yeah. Well, we really cracked it. Well, I don't really want to get into all of that no. now. Let's just start this podcast. <laughs> Here we are, podcasting. All right. Welcome, everyone, to another episode of I Love This, You Should Too. I am one of your hosts, the adequate Mr. Randawa. <laughs> and with me is my lovely co-host, the lovely Mrs. Randawa. Oh, that's me. We never really are introduced as Mr. and Mrs. Randawa. I'm occasionally referred to as mrs randawa oh i'm since i stopped teaching i'm never like mr randawa anymore to me mrs randawa is your mom though but i my mom's never been called mrs randawa (laughs) either in my brain she is mrs randawa and that i am just mrs randawa jr (laughs) (laughs) the younger (laughs) mrs randawa jr yeah there's no real mrs randawas in my families because my sister's some of them changed their names, uh-huh. and then the ones who didn't are Dr. Randella. Oh, true. Yeah. So we don't have a lot of Mrs. Randella. No, I'm happy to carry the banner. <laughs> Good job. <laughs> With your mom. <laughs> <laughs> um, wait, we were starting oh, to uh, podcast. do the podcast and not get into other stuff. Yes. We are going to be talking all about the 1999 film, The Talented Mr. Ripley, today. It was my pick. It was a movie that I saw when I was... Uh, probably in my late teens, somewhere around then, not too long after it came out. And I remember really loving it. And I remember really loving the soundtrack. I had a CD of the soundtrack. I liked it that much. And you know what? Soundtrack holds up. <laughs> and I'm going to say the movie holds up. Ah. But it was my pick. But it was new for Samantha, the talented Mrs. Randalla. <laughs> so as the title would suggest, Sam... I loved this movie. Did you? I loved it. I, it was good, huh? <laughs> yeah. No, it was fun. It had, like, you were right when you, like, introduced the movie to me last week. Mm-hmm. Um, you were right. It has all the things that I look for in, like, books. Yes. And there was, a, like, a romance. There was fancy rich people. There was boats it was great but then it also had a lot of those things that i look for in movies like uh, nihilism the questioning of the very notion of identity Mm -hmm. and it was uh, overall a very dark movie but you wouldn't know it from the first 30 minutes Mm -mm. yeah i i really loved the like ride of this film I'm glad to hear that. It's been a while since you've loved one of the movies I suggested. Mm-hmm. You're always like, yeah, it's fine. It's nice. Although I think this is the first American movie I've done in a long time. Oh. We were kind of all over the place with Korean and Japanese, and then we had a Canadian content week. And yeah. the first American movie I pick in a while is, of course, not set in America, but it is full of Americans and was an American production. And I think it's maybe our third or fourth movie that I've picked from the year 1999. Hmm. Because, again, greatest Golden year in American... <laughs> the single year of American filmmaking, I think the greatest one was 1999. Wow. Yeah. I, uh, I like the movies we've watched from 1999, so I'm going to agree with you. <laughs> 
Although I think you had mixed feelings on being John Malkovich. Yes, correct. Oh, so good. But we're not talking about that. Let's get into the talented Mr. Ripley. Full disclosure, I hate when podcasters or anyone apologizes for what they're about to do, but I think I'm heat-stroked, and mm-hmm. my mind is wandering, and I'm having trouble concentrating. And I didn't really do notes, but I still think we are going to deliver some quality content. Excellent. But rather than going through chronologically, which we do for movies that we tend not to like, or going thematically, which I often like to do, I think this, because... It's more of a character study than anything else. Mm -hmm. I think we should talk about this movie in characters and really getting into the psychology and the character development of Matt Damon's portrayal of Tom Ripley really will be breaking down the movie as well. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's a good way to go about it because I feel like if we go chronologically, we're going to miss some of that like insightfulness. Yeah, and if you're listening to this, you should have seen the movie already, so you just go watch that. And if it's one of these movies that's kind of a convoluted plot, not not in a bad way, but it's there's a lot to the plot. Mm-hmm. A lot of moving pieces, a lot of happenstance and luck and lying and mm-hmm. all that kind of stuff. Going over the plot is not fun. Like, that's what the movie is yeah. for. So I think maybe we'll start off with a little introduction of just overall what we liked, what we were surprised about, and then maybe we'll go through the characters because I think the strength of this movie is those performances. I think there's a lot of very good performances in this, and maybe we'll end up with Tom Ripley, and that will probably lead us to how we feel about the movie overall. Sounds good. Let's do it. We already know the things you liked about it. Were there any things that were surprising to you about this one? I guess one thing I was surprised about was just how layered um, Matt Damon was as Tom Ripley. I really appreciated his performance and his ability to do impersonations is incredible. (laughs) Because a lot of the actors that I like, you've seen them later in their career Mm -hmm. where they're almost like jokes of themselves or they turn into action stars, which is one of the two ways most of my beloved childhood actors go this was i was like a teenager at this time so it wasn't exactly a childhood thing but do you think of matt damon as oh the the talented young actor matt damon or he's more just like movie star matt damon i think movie star matt damon so what are some like movies that you would think of matt damon from or is he not someone who's really on your radar that much like i know that he was in Goodwill Hunting, mm-hmm. but I haven't seen it. Okay. <laughs> um, wasn't he in like a Bond type film? He had all those Jason Bourne movies. Right. Okay. Yeah. I just couldn't remember. I knew it was a B, but all I could think was Bond. Yeah. So I think to most of the world now, that's who he is. Yeah. And a lot of the, you know, all of the actors in this, this is kind of when they were getting big. It's not like this was their breakthrough because. Matt Damon, I think, already has an Oscar for writing Goodwill Hunting. I think Blanchett maybe already has an Oscar. Um, Gwyneth Paltrow definitely has one from the previous year for Shakespeare in Love. Oh. Philip Seymour Hoffman is going to get an Oscar in the next couple years or at least some more nominations. Jude Law as well. Maybe he wasn't as big as I think, but I was a very big Jude Law fan. Mm-hmm. And I, I, I loved him in this as well. But it's these... 
a handful of actors who have all gone on to have huge careers. And this is relatively early, but when they were all kind of known as like, oh, this is the next big thing. And they already were that next big thing. Right. Oh, the Oceans movies. Those are like the other ones that I know of him. Oh, right. Yeah. Which was like an ensemble cast of just like superstars. So I feel like that's how I see him. He's he's a superstar. Yeah. And we forget that a lot of the times with those superstar actors, they were just actor actors, mm-hmm. right? There are people who are just movie stars. They kind of skipped that step of being a good actor. Mm-hmm. Like if you get your big breaks in action movies or something like that, sometimes you are not always the the greatest actor before you become a like capital MS movie star. Mm-hmm. But... Damon, I would say, is just a, a talented, talented oh. actor. And we see that here. Oh, yeah. After seeing this, I'm like, I can see why he's famous. Like, I can see it. Mm-hmm. And he had such a varied kind of character that it was really interesting to see him kind of embrace all those parts of his characters. And I have a hard time imagining him like breaking character on set. This seems like it's such a huge character that you kind of have to just, like, be in it all the time. Right. Like, it would be really hard to, like, take that off and put it back on. One of the biggest things that was surprising to me on this rewatch, because I haven't seen it in, I guess, like, a decade more. Two decades? I don't know. Because I have no concept of time. But was how light the tone is to start. Yeah. Because I knew where the movie was going. So when you start off with the movie, you're like, oh, this seems like a fun kind of romp. It seems like one of those 50s madcap romps, like your charade and those types Mm -hmm. of things, in how it was edited with those kind of pieces coming up. I'd seen that in a lot of 50s caper movies. And then you have the music that often accompanies Ripley when he's doing some of his, uh, like, you know, Ripley business, some of his lying or deceit or whatever. It's not particularly ominous music. Instead, it's that fun Pink Panther-esque type music. So you think like, oh, he's up to something fun. And for a long time, he is. I guess we'll talk about why I think that that's effective in making him relatable at first and then you get brought along on this ride that you did not bargain for Mm -hmm. and that's kind of the strength of the movie but it was so much lighter and so fun for the first while yeah when you'd introduced it to me as this like dark twisty turny like scary movie with a little bit of murder at the beginning i was like is this a romantic comedy because like I don't understand how we're going to like transition to dark, twisty, turny murder film. And it, it did. And then when it happened, yeah. how did you feel? I was like, here it is. <laughs> and were you along for that journey or did you feel that was kind of jarring or? No, I was I was along. I was kind of immersed at that point. I think it wasn't too like stark. And the structure was very surprising to mm-hmm. me because, you know, I'm someone who always pays attention to the structure of a movie. And in this one, the act structure was was strange because Dickie dies less than halfway into the movie. Yeah. And I was like, wait, now what? And I kind of forgot everything after that. But I didn't feel like it lagged. I do think the the first hour is so much more fun and is so enjoyable. But the second hour is is still good. And I feel like the pacing and the tension of it still keeps you with it. Yeah, I think 
like Ripley at the beginning is so interesting to like try and get to know that that kind of pulled me in was I was like who is this guy who's like lying about Princeton he's like scamming his way into a trip to Europe He's like just yes ending who his way is to this guy and so then I was I was kind of hooked at that point and who is this guy We'll save it. We'll save it. Okay, great. <laughs> I was like, I'm not prepared for that question. <laughs> Another thing I mentioned already, I love the score of this movie. Oh, it's beautiful. First, like all the jazz, which is great. Not because I'm a huge jazz fan, although I like a good bit, but it just sets the time and place mm-hmm. very well. And then the score, which has some jazziness to it at times, but the score is fantastic. And then you have those themes like that Sinead O'Connor song at mm-hmm. the beginning, that kind of eerie, creepy one that comes in and out at some points when things get like, actually serious. Mm-hmm. And just all of it. I think it's one of my maybe not favorite scores, but you think of those like big giant scores. Yeah. This is a good example of a score where... Maybe you're not going to be singing the tunes mm-hmm. afterwards, but it is it is fantastic. And I think, well, of course I think because I bought the CD, but I think you can just sit and listen to this score, the yeah, whole soundtrack. You were playing it this week a little bit here and there, and I definitely think it's it's a nice score just to listen to. But the way it works in with the movie is kind of magical. Like they did a really good job with it. Like you feel like you're in Italy. Yeah, and it was just shot beautifully and directed um, amazingly well as well. Because the director, whose name I'm sure you'll tell me because you have it in front of you, Anthony Anthony Mangella? Yeah. Um, He had, I think, just come off the English patient. I don't know why I don't just pull up IMDb for all of this because I'm talking (laughs) about, oh, yeah, then they won an Oscar next year. I should have just looked it up. But he had just at least been nominated for Best Director, I think had won it. And... He was was just making hits. Yeah. Him, Damon, Blanchett, Paltrow, Jude Law, all of them were doing yeah. such good work at the time. And I believe Anthony Mangella died quite soon after this and, and young, so we didn't get to see a... I would have been very interested to see what he would have done because this wasn't a movie where I'm like, wow, the director, that's like a real trademark style and I can mm-hmm. pick him out. But it's just so wonderfully directed yeah yeah i think the choices that he made i can like appreciate the look and the feel and like the way that he directed the camera so do you want to get into some character studies and talk about performances and our favorite characters yes please who should we start with maybe dicky oh let's go dicky i was gonna say i wanted you to tell me who's the most attractive person in this movie Oh, I think Gwyneth Paltrow or Paltrow. Kate Blanchett. And then? Jude Law, probably. And then? Matt Damon. I'd go Jude Law number one. Uh-huh. Maybe Blanchett, too? She's gorgeous. Paltrow three. Damon four. Damon four. Huh. Oh, I forgot about uh, that character towards the end. But I guess maybe he'd be five. Oh, Jack Davenport? Yes. Uh, um, Yeah, I think I'd put him as five. He was like handsome. Very handsome. But not. But he's no Jude Law. He's no Jude Law. Who is? I've had a crush on Jude Law for many years. I feel like I've had a Jude (laughs) Law crush longer than you. (laughs) Probably. 
You've seen a lot of Jude Law stuff that I probably haven't. Around this time, like, I know Existence wasn't great, but he did this, and Gattaca is so underrated. He was a sex machine, I think, maybe the next year in oh. AI. He, Interesting. I, I like Jude Law a lot. I think he's very good. Yeah, I um, have really only seen him as, like, a romantic comedy lead. No, he, once upon a time, he was a good actor. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. But let's let's talk Dickie. Let's talk Dickie. Dickie Greenleaf. Herbert Richard Greenleaf Jr., I think is his full name. <laughs> Played by Jude Law. And I think he was nominated for Best Supporting Actor for this, but didn't win. How'd you like his performance? I liked it. I think he did that like rich kid with like oodles of money who doesn't understand how real life works the poor little rich boy yeah like, i'm so rich i wish i didn't have all of this money but i'm so dependent on all of this yeah. money yeah. yeah and the like not understanding a the plight of like people who don't have money and b just like how people navigate the world when you can't just throw like a stack of cash at it right like figuring out plane tickets or like figuring out food and like stuff like that it was just really interesting to kind of see um him compared to uh ripley because they clearly come from very different worlds and he had such a people always say magnetic performances and i was like that doesn't mean anything but i think this was a magnetic performance because he attracts everyone to him and Marge, I like that Gwyneth Paltrow's name is Marge. I was like, that's such a 1950s name. <laughs> Marge puts it very well when she's talking to Tom Ripley about how he's like the sun. When he's shining on you, you love it and you just crave it. But when he's not, it's dark and it's cold and you're alone and you just want that again. Mm-hmm. But he's fickle. He's going from one thing to the next he doesn't care about you as much as you care about him. Right. And they both kind of bonded almost about that because they both yeah. experienced that. Yeah, exactly. It His performance also very layered, but at the same time, very one faceted. Yeah, it seemed it seemed true to life. Mm-hmm. It's not like he was going over the top of like, look at this douchebag. But he's like, yeah, he's kind of a dick. Yeah. I, I don't think he's a terrible person but he's not a good person i think it's also just like a consequence of his circumstance that he's kind of like a dick (laughs) but he also um cheats on his fiance gets someone pregnant and then uh just kind of shuns her and she kills herself Mm -hmm. so he is pretty bad (laughs) yeah he's pretty bad (laughs) but that's kind of a the balancing act that this movie does not to say that like oh he was bad there but he's charming so it's okay it's kind of making you try to reconcile that you're Mm -hmm. like i too want to be dickie greenleaf's friend but he's also a piece of shit yeah and it makes you try to like deal with that and makes you reckon with like oh why do i like him yeah is it just because he's good looking Why is he so charming to me? And like access to things that you might not get. Yeah. 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 It's an interesting narrative of like people with money and their like hangers on. Yeah. And maybe it kind of makes you think about these movie stars or different characters in movies that you're like, yeah, why do I like that person so much? Mm -hmm. 
One thing I found really interesting was Dickie talking about Princeton and how Ripley couldn't have attended Princeton because he's like not like the people he knows at Princeton Mm -hmm. or who went to Princeton. But he means it kind of as a compliment. Yeah, Yeah. because he's like, no, you're like actually smart. Princeton's just full of like rich douchebags who are there because their parents paid for them to be there. Like Freddie. Like Freddie. I think Dickie's also a really interesting parallel to Ripley because both of them, if you ask, like, who are they? What are their characteristics? It's hard to give anything that is more than superficial. Because mm-hmm. Ripley we'll talk about later, but he kind of doesn't have a personality. He mirrors the personality of others. Mm-hmm. But Dickie has kind of grown up in this world, too, where... That's almost a, a strength, and he's trying to get away from that. But who who is he, really? He's yeah. just, he's rebelling against something, mm-hmm. and he likes jazz. But what does he really want? I don't know. Yeah. And I don't think that's a flaw in the writing. I think that's an interesting parallel in those two characters mm-hmm. and how coming from different places, similar characteristics are either positive or negative depending right. on your your past and i think dicky is so rich that he doesn't need to want anything like there's nothing in his life that he can't have mm-hmm. um and so i think that's the opposite for tom is that he wants everything yeah and he has nothing yeah and he has no internally ab- or like financially yeah and his only way of getting things is by kind of manipulating the system I think another mirror to that is Kate Blanchett's performance as Meredith. Because Meredith also has that poor little rich girl thing. Mm-hmm. And she has that one line about, well, it's so hard being rich, but I don't want to hang out with anyone who's not rich because they don't know how hard it is to be yeah. rich. And you're just like, fuck you. Yeah, exactly. But also, she has no like malice to her no. at all. That's truly what she believes. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I liked her. She seemed very innocent. And I think that might have thrown Ripley a little bit because she's like very pure and innocent. And maybe he hasn't seen a lot of that. And that might trip up his like morals of, you know, tricking people and getting what he wants. Yeah, she has a lot of parallels with Dickie as well, because they're both people who come from money Mm -hmm. and claim they don't want the money, but still use all of that money uh, all the time. And this seems like a lot of these characters, I'm thinking about them and like, oh, maybe they're not that great. But that's not the case. I think it is, is intentional, just like, oh, you know what it is now. I see a lot of Hemingway. It's like the sun also rises. Um... These characters who go to Italy to like try to um, like, oh, we're going to find something. It was like Hemingway's lost generation. Those people between the two world wars who were like, Mm -hmm. what do we have to live for? And they're like, oh, yeah, we're just going to go to other countries and spend our money. And he wrote about them as like almost a condemnation at times. And it seems like this movie is also kind of following in that, too, because both Dickie and Meredith are just kind of coasting and floating around really mm-hmm. right they're not there for a reason they're not in italy to to do something <laughs> and i think you could even read into it saying that dicky coming to italy getting someone pregnant and then just abandoning her 
is kind of representative of how a lot of the world sees Americans and how Americans see other cultures. Mm -hmm. They go to a place or they take that culture, they use it for their own um, amusement. And then when they're done, they just like toss it away and they don't have to follow through with that. And I think Dickie's time in Italy is kind of a commentary on that, perhaps. Yeah, that wasteful culture. And Meredith, again, I don't know much about her. She seems like someone who is looking for something, but she doesn't know what she's looking for. Hmm. And a lot of the time, she's almost in the movie more as a as a plot device. Mm-hmm. She furthers the plot a lot, so you get why she's in it for those reasons. But there's still something about her performance that I just loved her. Mm-hmm. I loved when she was on screen. I actually haven't seen many Kate Blanchett movies, but she was just fantastic in the small amount of work she is doing in this. And I think that she is still a very good actress. Yes. Like, as she's gotten older and done more work and stuff, I think she's still very, very good. And she's very versatile. Yeah, for sure. um, In the things that she's done. And I I think that she is uh, pretty incredible. For whatever reason, she always seems old to me. Not like like an old lady. No. But it was so, it was almost bizarre to see her as like young, vibrant Kate Blanchett. Yeah. She just seems like perpetually old. And that, again, that sounds bad, but maybe she is just such a um, mature and nuanced actor that I don't think of her as like a, like gallivanting around uh, Italy type person. Yeah, and like carefree. I feel like a lot of the stuff that she does is very serious too. Yes. So, especially now. Um, but I think that this is kind of opposite because she's just like flitting around Europe and like getting into trouble. How many of the actors in this are in the Marvel universe? Kate Blanchett was. She was Thor's sister? Jude Law was. He was in Captain Marvel, I believe. Oh. Gwyneth Paltrow. She's Pepper Pot. Is yeah. Matt Damon? I don't know. I it's Google. probably just a matter of time. Yeah. And if Philip Seymour Hoffman were still alive, I bet he'd be one of the agents or something. Uh, he was in Thor Ragnarok. Matt Damon was? He played an Asgardian man playing the role of Loki oh, that's in a right. play going yes. on in the movie. Yeah, he totally was. Kate Blanchett was in that one too, I think. Or is she in a different Thor? It doesn't matter. We're not talking MCU, but I no. forgot about that scene. And that scene was hilarious. Yeah. I really like that. I, I like Matt Damon a lot because he is also willing to make fun of himself. Yeah. He doesn't take himself very seriously. And I like that about him. That's kind of what I think of him as now. is like a comedic jokey kind of actor. Similar to Brad Pitt in a lot of ways. They both... Yeah were very good actors, achieved the superstardom, and now all, often do things that are almost commentaries on their own careers. Mm-hmm. They have like a certain uh, self-reflexivity about that. Yeah. And in a smaller performance, we have Philip Seymour Hoffman playing Freddie, And I love Philip Seymour Hoffman. R.I.P. <laughs> so I have a really hard time with him. The character or the actor? The actor. Okay. The actor playing the character, I guess, because to me, Philip Seymour Hoffman is like 60. 60? Yeah. Why? I don't know. He's <laughs> just, just like me and Kate Blanchett, I he's guess. He's like an older actor to me. And so him being with Matt Damon and Jude Law and trying to be, not trying to be, 
being that age that they are supposed to be like early 20s in that movie I just think like he did a great performance but it was just really hard for me to like fit him into that cast interesting I don't know he's just what do you know what you've seen him in that makes you think of him as an older actor no I can't think of a movie that makes me think of him but he does just seem older I don't have a good reason for it. <laughs> I guess that's exact same thing I was saying about Kate Blanchett. I just always think of her as an older actor, yeah. and she's not. She was young. I loved so many of uh, Philip Seymour Hoffman's movies, and he is fantastic in this. Mm-hmm. Oh my god, I hated him so much. He's so bad. I just yeah. wanted to punch him in the face every yeah. time he spoke. And he also seemed like there was something seedy going on behind the scenes there. I guess not as seedy as what's going on behind uh, Ripley's scenes. Yeah, but yeah, no. I like, think it wasn't behind the scenes. I think he's just like a, he's just a piece of shit, and he was very willing to admit that. Yeah, yeah. and is kind of proud of it. It seemed like. Yeah, I think he's like in a lot of movies about like rich people. There's always the guy who gets the stuff, right? So if it's like a party or like drugs or alcohol or women or like whatever, I feel like that's who Philip Seymour Hoffman was. He's like the one who makes the good time happen. And he does such a good job at being the character that sums up how this elite world sees someone like Tom Ripley. You can just hear him talking about like, oh, he's wearing that same coat again. Mm -hmm. And that whole thing or the Tommy How's the peeping? Yeah, <laughs> that, that was... bit. And he just keeps saying it. Or when he comes in and he's like playing the key on the piano and just like looking at him and hitting that off key. Yeah. I don't know how he didn't kill him right then. Yeah. Because I wanted to. <laughs> yeah, that was a pretty harsh uh, juxtaposition to like everyone else in this movie of him. Mm-hmm. He's just like, he knows how to push buttons and yeah. he's just a dick because he can be a dick. <laughs> And he just revels in it. He loves being an asshole. For the small amount of screen time he had, he, I think him and Blanchett like really stole a lot of scenes. Mm -hmm. Blanchett, it's probably harder to say that because she wasn't a big performance. I just found her uh, just infinitely watchable. Oh, yeah. And with Hoffman, I just found him infinitely hateable. So those two are going to draw a lot of attention from me. So Gwyneth Paltrow is Marge. I thought her performance was just like incredible i thought she was she was like and i keep saying layered she was very layered or something um but she just like really brought some like realness to the characters where like jude law isn't like really a real person because he's rich and he has no cares or like wants in this world um gwyneth paltrow is like she's a novelist and she is like a true human being. But she also, I'm not saying that the performance wasn't good, but she also is there because she's rich. Yeah. She can afford to just be doing whatever. And with her, though, she's like, oh, I'm writing a novel. I don't know if she's really writing that <laughs> novel. I don't know if that novel is complete garbage. But it didn't seem that far from Dickie being like, oh, I'm here to see jazz. Like, Mm-hmm. Okay, whatever. Whatever you need to tell yourself, you're just rich and hanging out in Italy. Yeah. And that is that is what she was doing. But she is just a character who actually has sympathy for others. Mm-hmm. She has like and the she humanity. Is maybe Dickie the doesn't. only character who has sympathy for others in this whole movie. Yeah. 
Absolutely. And she comes across as like almost motherly a lot of the mm-hmm. time, but it's mostly because she's dealing with Dickie, who is a child. <laughs> yeah. And uh, Tom Ripley, who may or may not have emotions. Yeah, maybe. And maybe that's why she feels like she's like the most human out of everybody. Oh, from the most human, I would definitely agree with. For the first half of the movie, I thought she was a bit one note. Hmm. And not saying that it was a bad performance, but the character, that's kind of what she was doing. And when she kind of expands into her own person as she starts becoming concerned where with where Dickie is and then uh, getting to the point of accusing Tom of doing something, mm-hmm. I think that's when her performance really starts to become more multifaceted like mm-hmm. that. Yeah, it was interesting to see her character progress. And um, I thought she did such an incredible job in that scene where they're getting on the boat in, was it Rome or Venice? Towards the end of the movie? Towards the end of the yeah. movie when Greenleaf is like taking her home, basically. Dickie Sr. And... um Dick. <laughs> no. <laughs> Herbert. Herbert. And her like outburst there is just like it was like heart wrenching Mm -hmm. because, you know, she's grieving a real person and she's staring at someone that she is convinced has killed that person that she's grieving. And nobody is taking a moment to like listen to her side of the story. And she's, you can tell she just feels like lost and small. And, and she's is... kind of just dismissed as being hysterical, yeah. right? It's it's the 50s, you're a grieving woman, what do you know? Women be crazy. And yet yeah, she's just not listened to and she knows what's actually happening. Yeah. And so that little scene where they where they basically like put her on the boat mm-hmm. um, was just so moving and good because she is having like a real human reaction to something in a movie where a lot of people don't have reactions that are kind of appropriate. Right. Yeah, she is kind of the the human core of this movie in a lot of ways. Upon this watch, I didn't love the performance as much as maybe the the other ones we've talked about. Mm -hmm. And maybe I'm being too too harsh on Paltrow, but... I'm not saying it's bad by any stretch. I just remember at the time loving Gwyneth Paltrow. And we've seen her in other things. And I still think she was fantastic. I think she was very good before she was whatever kind of cult leader she is now. Mm -hmm. She was another one. Like so many of these people have gotten so big that you forget that there was a talented performer in there at one point. Yeah, It was probably Shakespeare in Love that like really did it for me as a teenager watching that thinking that was a great performance. But I think as good as she was in that scene, what I liked is when she was talking to Tom, because she was the only person at many times that would talk to Tom as, as a human, as a person, as an equal, he got so little of that. And he does not reciprocate for her because he's she's an obstacle to him. Yeah. She's the Marge problem to him. Yeah. So she's still not even getting anything from him. But when she was talking about Jude Law, in the scene that I was talking about earlier, like when he shines on you, everything is great and warm. But when he's gone, it's so cold. You can see that she knows about all the other stuff that Dickie is up to because she's talking about how all these People want to be with him. And then she goes, and that's just the guys. Yeah. So she knows what he's doing. Mm -hmm. And she 
is still kind of a prisoner to her affection towards him. Mm -hmm. Because despite all of that, she still loves him. She shouldn't. Yeah. But you can't blame the person for loving the wrong person. Yeah. You can't blame the victim. She, Dickie's the bad guy. Yeah. Sure, she should know better, but she doesn't. And you can't, like, justify not loving or loving someone. It's it's hard to control, right? Mm -hmm. So you have to be on her side in that. And how she is playing this kind of defeated person earlier on in the movie, someone who knows that the person she loves will never love her the way she loves him. That part, I thought, had some good nuance to it and was uh, was was pretty sad. Yeah, yeah. Her whole speech about um, Dickie being like the sun and you just wanting to like be around it and we're like, this is the life that you want. Yeah. Like this is what you've chosen to like fill your time with. And it was it was very, very sad. And um, it, it does like ring true of like just like a bad relationship Mm -hmm. and her like not wanting anything better for herself and i think that's a major theme of the movie too is how a charismatic person they feel like their existence is the reward and that is is perpetuated by people around them Mm -hmm. dickie's a piece of shit he is (laughs) everyone loves him and watching the movie there's times where i loved him yeah, oh no, he he looked like someone that you could have a drink with and it would be very fun. Yeah, and I think that's some of the brilliance of the commentary of this movie is saying, is getting you to root for someone like that. Yeah. Getting you to love someone like that and then be like, why? Why do you love this person? Why does she love this person? Why do we? Charisma. Charisma. And this movie is a lot about that, about tom not having that and wanting it Mm -hmm. and just essentially mirroring how other people do it and realizing that that is value yeah having people like you is is value and we get to see dickie is the epitome of that through much of the movie and marge's relation to him is is an example of that yeah yeah this there's a lot of themes in this movie that also make you look kind of back at yourself of like would you be any better in that situation right um like when he calls him a leech yeah and you i i kind of thought like yeah like tell him he is leeching off of him but then i'm like wouldn't i do the same thing if i met somebody who had like 500 million dollars and just was spending it freely on it you're like it's nothing to you and it's everything to me yeah that the time he spent the money he spent was nothing to him but it was everything to tom Mm -hmm. and it seems like it was everything to marge as well yeah exactly but she was just less uh less needy than tom Mm -hmm. yeah yeah it's interesting the lessons i guess in this movie that might be the wrong word but like just the things that you makes you think about yourself as well when Mm -hmm. you're judging these characters and then you kind of turn it back on yourself and you're like no you would have done the same thing (laughs) and that's i think that's what i like about so many of these movies when i always talk about like oh yeah this has the things that i like but it doesn't have that extra level Mm -hmm. that's that kind of extra level that i like to talk about is how does it make you reflect upon yourself what does it say about the world in general and i think this says a lot about uh, uh, class structures and social stratification and how that affects things Mm -hmm. i think the movie makes a lot of good points about that too yeah 
Shall we try to break down the talented Mr. Ripley? Oh my goodness. That seems like a impossible task, but yeah. yeah. I don't know. I don't know where to even start. No. So it starts with his narration. Mm-hmm. And from some of the movies we've watched and movies from the 50s, this is someone telling a story. So you get to feel like the voiceover is usually the truth, right? They're not going to lie in a voiceover. They're lying to everyone, but they're not going to lie to us. Mm -hmm. So that sets it up. And he starts off with, if I could go back, I would would take it back. Mm -hmm. It all started with borrowing that jacket. Right. And I love that it did. He's not just saying that. There is a, a lot of coincidence, sure. But there is such a quick slope that he slides down after borrowing that jacket. I think one thing I want to talk about is whether or not we think that Tom is out to manipulate people. Is he out to do a scheme or does he fall into it? Yeah, I think he falls into it. I think initially he falls into it because I don't think he he didn't have any sort of plan. He was just playing the piano and then someone goes, oh, you go to Princeton? And he's like, yeah. He just yes ands his way into a, a trip to Italy. Yeah. And I don't fault him at that point for anything. I was like, yeah, go for it. I would do the exact same thing if these Richies are going to send you to Italy and you're someone who... He's a piano tuner. He's never going to be able to travel there Mm -hmm. on his own, and especially not in the first-class way that he goes. Yeah. So I don't fault him for going along with things at all. And I think that's interesting on the the writing side of things because it makes you sympathize or perhaps empathize with Ripley. So you're on his side now. And I like movies that put you on someone's side because at the beginning of this movie, I'm on Ripley's side. Mm -hmm. He's just some guy who's working hard, loves playing the piano, doesn't get breaks in life. We don't get to see a lot of his past, but he's not living in a great place. Mm -hmm. So we know that he's not particularly well off financially and he's not going to have the same opportunities. And we get to see a character like Dickie who has everything he could want, but doesn't do anything with that. Then we see Tom, who has so little and is trying to make the best out of it. Mm -hmm. So, of course, I'm on Tom's side. And I like when movies put you on someone's side and then you decide when you turn. Right. Like, how far do you go being on that person's side before you go like, oh, no, you're the bad guy. I'm not on your side. Yeah, I was on his side... And then I got a little bit shaken when he starts doing the impressions. Mm-hmm. And I was like, oh, maybe this guy's just like not good and I shouldn't be cheering for him. And then Dickie just finds him amusing. Yeah. And then he slowly gets like more and more bogged down in this life. And then all of a sudden I came to the realization that, yeah, he's not a good guy. <laughs> Before he kills Dickie? Um, yeah, as he's kind of coming to the realization that that's what he needs to do. When do you think he comes to that realization? Probably when Jude Law is like saying, like, you're a leech, you need to go, and like is trying to kick him out of his life, basically. I think that he never intends to kill Dickie. No? No, because when... Dickie starts hitting him first. 
Mm-hmm. And Ripley is cowering and is terrified. Mm-hmm. And Dickie like keeps berating him and berating him. Or maybe he's not even hitting him at that point. But he snaps and hits him once with the oar. Yeah. And his reaction, which I believe is is truthful, is immediate regret and concern. Mm-hmm. I don't think he had intention to kill Dickie. Oh. I think he hit him and then he's like, oh shit. He tries to stop him. And then he goes, tries to like stop the bleeding. And then Dickie leaps on him. And then he pushes him off and hits him. And then he just doesn't stop. Yeah. And he's like, I need to finish this now. I think he didn't intend to kill Dickie. And I think he regrets killing Dickie. I'm not saying he's a good guy or anything. He killed him. But I think that it was a more a a crime of passion than anything premeditated yeah i could see that being true because he just looked so scared Mm -hmm. ripley does yeah there's a few points in this movie where he is very childlike usually around water yeah he's scared of water is he when he first gets to the beach he takes off his shoes and he runs to the water, puts his feet in it, and turns around. Yeah. When everyone else is swimming off of the boat, he sits and is reading his book. Mm-hmm. When Dickie is on the boat with him, just the two of them, he's scared and says, so like, no, stop it. I'm serious. I'm serious. He's scared of water, I think. I, I tried to like psychoanalyze because that's what we're going to do here. <laughs> and I was like, you know, the classic... Uh, when you gaze into the abyss, it gazes back into you. The, the ocean is emptiness. Mm-hmm. And that's a reflection of Ripley's own emptiness, I, is my <laughs> hypothesis. Oh. So when he sees that, the scariest thing to him is his own emptiness. And that mm-hmm. comes back in the, later in the movie. He feels like he is nothing. He's nobody. And that's a theme that comes up a lot. And he tries to create this personality this whole itself everything about him is invented and it's usually done so by mirroring other people he doesn't have a self i don't think tom ripley is anyone Hmm. we're gonna watch american psycho at one point and that's kind of my idea there too and how that is um like part of corporate culture just like being nobody is kind of good yeah being a, a an empty vessel and i think he is that so the vast ocean is is a reflection of that and him being scared of the water is him being scared to face his own emptiness whoa man maybe i don't know (laughs) maybe i just made that all up but it's it seems to make sense to me a little bit made sense to me so then do you think he was a killer just waiting to happen or do you think he kills out of necessity or circumstance I think he's telling himself he has to kill out of necessity. I think he's just like a psychopath. I I think I'd agree with you. I'm not saying that if he had never gone on this trip, maybe he would never kill anyone. I think that's a definite possibility. Mm -hmm. But I also think like he might. I think he is neither good nor evil. I think he has no morals because he is largely empty. Yeah. Yeah, I think so. And I think that emptiness is like what psychopaths. Yes. It's where the conscience goes. Yeah. And I think that he doesn't want to deal with that because that means he's a bad person. And like you said, he thinks he's a good person who is like helping people. Tom? Tom. 
I disagree with that. I don't think he thinks he's a good person. I think he is aware of that he is nothing. Mm-hmm. And that is what he's trying to to get away from. And the only ways he knows how to do this are to please others. I think he tries to be a people pleaser much of the time. Mm-hmm. But I think he doesn't know why he's doing that. I think he pleases others just to to fit in. He wants to feel wanted, but he brings nothing to the table. Right. So the only way he knows is like trying to do what people ask for him, which makes him great for uh, the roles that he is in when the movie is starting. Like uh, when Greenleaf Sr. meets him, he loves him. He's like, oh, this kid, this kid is going places. This kid is great. And I was trying to think, like, why? What's what is it about him? But all Ripley does is mirror what he sees in others. Yeah. And Greenleaf Senior is um, like a corporate guy. It's shipping, I think. Shipping. That yeah. He's a essentially a billionaire. I guess not in those days, but what would now be a billionaire. Yeah. That's a fun little comparison too, because if Ripley was greenleaf jr was dicky mm-hmm. because he talks about him like you're wasting everything you have what i would do with what you have he would do so well mm-hmm. in a corporate structure like how ceos so many of them are sociopaths or psychopaths but that's like a very productive place for a psychopath yes. is in business yes and that's that's not just me hating rich people that's that's an actual thing yes that exactly happens. and he would do so well if he were dicky he would just please his father and have no scruples about going about his business. Mm-hmm. And yeah. he would be incredibly successful. I don't know much about Greenleaf Sr. He doesn't seem to have a lot of empathy for others. No. He's kind of dismissive about his own son being missing. Mm-hmm. Like he cares enough to come out there, but it seems like he cares about how it reflects on him. Yeah, he's caring about like the optics of his son leaving a suicide note. So then you wonder if... Tom Ripley was in that position, he would act kind of like Greenleaf Sr. And that makes me think like that's why he loves that guy. Yeah. He's uh, he's a perfect son for you, for someone in that world. Yeah. Yeah. I agree um, with you in that he would be really good at business with that. I feel like that's what business people want their underlings to be is like, don't bring your emotions to work. Mm-hmm. Don't worry about, like, the morals of this and, like, just be a good worker drone. <laughs> Do what you can to please me. Yeah. I have authority. And that's exactly what Tom Ripley would be. Yeah, exactly. So, yeah, I think there are many situations where he would do really well. But this, like, really emotionally charged situation isn't as easy for him. Definitely. Yeah. yeah. You and- see him kind of struggle with people who are emoting really hard yeah like meredith and like marge and it's i was just thinking about the moment in the carriage with meredith when he's like basically breaking up with her yes and she's sitting there crying in the carriage and he's like well i'll see you tomorrow for coffee he doesn't care about her no and he doesn't care about emotions he doesn't he's not it seems like he's not able to read that she's like really upset and could actually use him to like comfort her do you think he cares about Dickie? I felt a little bit like like he loved Dickie and wanted to like be around him forever. Yeah, it's a fine line. Does he want to be Dickie or does he want to be with him? Yeah. And I think that 
he is a character that is so emotionally stunted Mm -hmm. that he can't differentiate. Yeah. So I read it as Tom Ripley is gay. Mm -hmm. He may not have known it. Or he might be asexual. There's... Who knows? Yeah. I I do hate how often... uh, evil characters would be gay coded because then you're like yeah he's a bad guy he's gay yeah uh, that was the thing that happened so 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 much and i don't think this falls into it in the same way mm-hmm. because i think although he might be i don't think that is uh is linked with his his homicidal tendencies maybe i think there is a chance that maybe He is uh, a psychopath. And when he found himself attracted to Dickie, he doesn't know what to do with that. Right. He doesn't, he's never been attracted to someone. He's never been in love. He's never had all of these emotions. So now that he's having them, he doesn't know what to do with it. He doesn't know, like, am I in love with this man? Or do I want to be this man? Yeah. And his, he just goes like, yeah, all of it. I, I just want him. I want yeah, to be like him, str- I want to become him, I want to be with him. There's like a strong argument for both. Mm-hmm. And I think, yeah, I agree with you that he doesn't know because he's never experienced this kind of human interaction. Yes. I don't think he has the uh, emotional intelligence yeah. to to parse this out. And especially if you're in the 50s, you're probably, I think this character has had, had no sexual uh, interactions in his life and finding yourself sexually attracted to a man and having no emotional intelligence, almost no emotions, he doesn't know what to do with it. Yeah. Yeah, I agree with you. And it seems like he tests it out earlier. Like, there's that bathtub scene. Of course, they're, like, playing chess. It's a battle of wits. And then uh, he says, like, oh, can I get in? And, of course, he plays it off like, oh, not with you in it, of course. Yeah. But he's lingering. He's watching. Oh, that the peeping scene, too, yeah. right? And after he kills Dickie, he just sits there with the body and he just holds him. He mm-hmm. just holds the dead body and like weeps and I think maybe even sleeps with him like that. Yeah, you do see him taking in and like learning things from experiences like that. And I don't know much about the book, but I believe he's gay in the book as well. And there's a, a bunch of books. Oh. There's more than just one. There's also other Ripley movies. There's like a prequel and there's sequels to it because he he goes on more like adventures and stuff. I don't think they have... uh, There's there's definitely none of the same cast or crew of of this movie. But there's like a French one. So it's something that's been adapted a few times with various tones and various uh, truthfulness to the source material. But the uh, author was a gay woman in, I think, in the 50s as well when... uh, when she wrote this she was also like a real asshole so i don't want to be like oh yeah she was a a lesbian writing novels in the 50s what a great person she probably had a hard time but she was a real piece of shit and wrote ripley kind of as herself it seems like Mm. she was like a real womanizer and an anti-semite and hated everybody and let them know very often but it does make me feel like maybe then at least there isn't somebody tacking on like, oh, yeah, he's uh, evil and weird. Let's make him gay, too, because those kind of things go together. I don't think that's the case. I think that the author rather was trying to work out some stuff herself. Yeah, that makes more sense. And also interesting that she wasn't a good person. Yeah. Hmm. All kinds of people are assholes. Yeah. Gay or straight, you can still be a dick. 
No, yeah, we kind of just got right into things. I did have some like thinking about starting off at the beginning about how he's always so close to what he wants, but he can't obtain it. Like he's a piano tuner and he's like playing in the big concert hall and then somebody catches him and he has to apologize. And the only thing stopping him in all of this is just is just money. Like I think the the class system is very apparent in this movie and there's a lot of commentary on that in not just what we were talking about, how Tom would be very successful if you were in that world. But that seems to be the only thing that's keeping him from success is just his lack of funds. And then when he gets a little bit, he he goes a long way on it. Yeah, that thousand dollars. And I kind of forgot that it was like the 50s. So that thousand dollars is more like ten thousand dollars. Yeah, maybe like it's a lot of money for Mm -hmm. that time. And I think it is interesting the difference between how he and and Dickie spend money. And Dickie spends Tom's money. Yeah. Of course, Tom's money is Greenleaf Senior's money, but he asks him to buy the the icebox yeah. and things like that. But then when it comes time to the ski trip, he's like, oh, well, you can't pay your own way. So right. when Dickie could front it very easily, oh, he yeah. just doesn't care. He's just done with him. Yeah. He's like, he's like, on to the next, please. Next adventure. Yeah. I like it in the beginning because you assume it's just class. Um, financially speaking, that stops Tom from being one of these people. And as soon as he has the coat on, like everyone trusts him, right? He's given a thousand dollars, just like nothing. Yeah. And then as the movie goes on, just as we are forced to identify with him and then start distancing ourselves, we start realizing it's not just class. There is something wrong with this human. Yeah. Like how he researches jazz. He's not like, oh, this is cool. He studies it like a text because he doesn't have that capacity to even enjoy it, it feels like. Mm -hmm. Yeah, he's interesting because he's always grasping for something. I like when he's studying Italian and the the phrases he's saying is, um, this is my face. This is the face of Dickie. Like, that's what it means, what he's yeah. saying. You're like, oh, oh, he's, is, he's, is he a big creep? Yeah, I think he's a big creep. <laughs> that's uh, super creepy. <laughs> and it's fitting that the song he sings, he does uh, My Funny Valentine. And the first time he hears it, he says, like, I can't tell if this is a man or a woman. <laughs> the the Chet Baker one. Oh, yeah. And um, then he that's the song he does. And he doesn't change it. He does it exactly as close as to Chet Baker as he mm-hmm. can. He's... He's a mimic. He doesn't bring anything. Yeah. He just mimics what he sees around him. Yeah. And he goes through the movie and it's equal parts skill and luck. There's a lot of luck. It's not like he's one of those mastermind psychopaths. No. He's smart, but he's not doing anything that most people couldn't do if they had the the will to do something like that. Right. He's not uh, outsmarting the police that much. He's, no. He's lucky a lot of the time. And towards the end of the movie, he just keeps having to kill people because they're figuring out. So it's not like he's, yeah, skirting this big plan and he has like like a detailed layout of how things are going to go. <laughs> he's just like reacting in the end. There's also that scene on the train. I think that was maybe not the first time, but that's when you realize like, oh, there's something not good with this guy. <laughs> because he's not just smelling dicky because he loves him there's something extra he's he looks in the mirror or the glass and their faces kind of overlap 
So that's when I started thinking like, oh, he doesn't just love him. I think he wants to be him. Yeah. It was a bit of a like wear your skin kind of moment. Yeah. Where you're like, ooh, this is going somewhere creepy and I don't like it. Because <laughs> at first it looks like he's in reflection kissing Dickie. Mm-hmm. And you're like, okay, I get that. He loves him, but he he is forbidden from this love. Right. That's something you can understand. And then the faces kind of merge and you realize that there's something else going on. I think this is the second movie that has uh, stolen a scene from Persona, which one day we'll watch. But <laughs> we're giving you some more fun stuff before we get into Bergman. Okay, great. <laughs> I guess it's just kind of the ending we need to talk about now. Yeah. So I did love, um, what's his name again? Although I've forgotten him. Oh, Peter Smith Kingsley. Peter Smith Kingsley. What a name. What, what a, a guy. rich person name. Yeah. yeah. There's a lot of good rich person names in this. Mm-hmm. He's so likable. And there are moments when he's talking with Ripley that you kind of forget what Ripley is. And you're yeah. like, I just want them to be happy. And then you're <laughs> like, oh, no, wait, that's 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 the killer. Yeah. And movie, you got me again. You got me. You give me flashes of something that you want to cheer for. Yeah. You want these two guys who are lonely Mm -hmm. you want them to find solace in each other but then you realize who tom ripley is and Mm -hmm. that's that's not a person we should be cheering for that is a straight-up psychopath murderer i did wonder at the beginning of that whole like them going away together if this was like a happy ending yeah which i was like this is an odd choice that like maybe there's gonna be a happy ending but it wasn't a happy ending it was just like another bad thing happening (laughs) Why do you think he kills Peter? I think because Meredith is a like better for him, I guess. Like he assumes that if he's gonna be around Meredith, that's a better situation. Oh, interesting. And maybe he doesn't really know what these feelings are with Peter and he thinks like it's more acceptable for me to be with Meredith. Meredith is also rich and I think He's like, no, Meredith's like the more correct choice for me then for the next phase or whatever, however long that lasts. That makes sense. If uh, you subscribe to the idea that Ripley is, well, of course he's manipulative, but uh, manipulative with foresight and he's plotting and planning things, Mm -hmm. then that makes a lot of sense. But I think I just never thought that he was that. I'm not saying he's not bad. I'm just saying he's evil instinctually right. and not with forethought. Right. I I had a lot of trouble with this part. I understood why he was doing it. I'm not saying it's the right choice, but I never thought it was unclear in his actions. Like he kills Dickie, I thought, because things got out of hand mm-hmm. and then he he finishes it and he regrets it, but too late. We're yeah. moving on. I think he kills... Freddy, because he's going to be found out. Yeah. And he's just saving his own ass, very simply. I never quite get why he kills Peter. I think what you said makes sense. But I think I never really believed that he had that amount of foresight. It it makes the most sense. Or that he just simply um, doesn't want to get caught in a lie on the boat. Yeah. And he's killing him. And he can get rid of him easier than he can get rid of Meredith and her family. Right. That makes sense. But... When he's talking to Peter, it's the only time in the movie that he ever 
seems to have any sort of introspection or self-reflection or emotional intelligence. Because he talks about how um, there's this room in the basement. Uh, he's talking about a metaphor for his mind or a soul or whatever. And you just lock the door and never go in there. And then you meet someone special and all you want to do is toss them the key and say, open up, step inside. But you can't because it's dark and there are demons. And if anybody saw how ugly it is. I think that is outside of the voiceover, which uh, starts and kind of finishes the movie. I think that's his truth that he does want to share with someone. He wants to be wanted, but he also knows that there is this terrible darkness inside of him. Mm -hmm. At the beginning of the movie, you can say like, oh, he's just a fun guy going out and just doing whatever. Oh, he's a bit of a trickster. And then as the movie progresses, you can say that he is empty and he's a psychopath and doesn't really have any sort of moral compass. And he would be a great soldier and a great businessman, but you put him in this kind of love triangle thing and that is not an environment where he can do anything productive. Right. But at this point, I started thinking that this is someone who is evil mm -hmm. because he's saying that there's this darkness inside of him. And maybe that was there before the movie starts because we don't know what he was doing before that. Right. We don't know if he's killed 20 people. <laughs> yeah. It's, it's, it's entirely possible. And this speech is the first thing that made me think like, you know what, maybe it wasn't just he fell into it. I, I think he fell into this whole thing because of the jacket, and I don't think he planned any of that. Right. But it makes me think that he doesn't just fall into killing. There's something in him, mm -hmm. and he knows that. And this is the first time he is kind of uh, uh, aware of his own faults. Or maybe right. he does talk about how, I was going to say he talks about it in the opening monologue, but that actually happens at the end of the movie. When the mm. movie starts, it's him sitting there after having killed Peter. Right. That's where it starts. So we get this insight into him about how there's this darkness and he wants to share it, but he knows he can't. I think he kills Peter because Peter has forced him to reckon with this darkness. Right. Because Peter is is loving and supportive and I think into him romantically. Yeah. That... This has come to the surface, and I think it's dismissive if we were to say that when confronted with his homosexuality in someone who else who is gay, that he it's too much for him and he kills him. Right. I think that's that's too too dismissive of of this entire character. Yeah, I think it's more that having someone who actually loves him, this thing that he wanted, he thought he wanted, the first time he gets it, he realizes. I can't do this. I can't do love. I can't share who I am mm -hmm. because who I am is dark and empty. And seeing this person who is willing to know about me is forcing me to reconcile with how empty and dark I am. And I can't look at that. So he kills Peter because Peter is, is uh, capable of holding a mirror up to him. Not because he's saying, like, look at these bad things you're doing, but because he's saying, you can be yourself around me. Right. And who he is, is nobody. Nobody. And when he has to reckon with that, when he has to deal with it, he can't. Right. Every time he's forced to deal with who he really is, like when Dickie calls him out, he's like, you're a leech. You're boring. Yeah. It's true. Yeah. And he lashes out and he kills him. When... 
Freddy is antagonizing him and saying, like, this place looks terrible. You don't have the taste. You Look, you've really made a life for yourself, huh? You just come in here and you're you're taking everything from everyone else and now you think you know? Mm-hmm. He lashes out at him and he kills him. And with Peter, it's the same thing, but in a, in a positive way. He's saying in his intimacy with them that you can be who you are around me. Mm-hmm. But who he is is nobody. He's just a reflection of others. And when he's forced to deal with that, he lashes out and he kills Peter. The only person who ever really wanted to know who he was. That's what I think. Hmm. Because throughout the movie, every time he lies, that's an act of self-destruction. When he says, yeah, I'm Dickie Greenleaf, Tom Ripley dies a little more. Right. He goes like, oh, yeah, I went to Princeton. Whoever the real Tom Ripley is dies a little more. And maybe he's being forced to realize that the person that Peter loves is not Tom Ripley. It's this construction I've made. Right. Because every it's time he lies, person. it's an act of, of self-destruction. And this is the final one is killing Peter is him killing himself because that's the only person who took the time to try to know him. Right. And Meredith doesn't care. Meredith's like, oh, you're fun. Yeah. Meredith doesn't know anything about Tom and doesn't seem like she wants to. She is... A very engaging character, but I don't think there's a lot of depth to her. And right. not saying that it's a bad writing or bad acting. I think no. that's who the character is intentionally. Yeah. I think that's who most of these characters are. They don't have depth. And I think that's an interesting comparison to, because we have these rich people who are shallow. Mm-hmm. And this other person in Ripley who is less than shallow. He's nothing. He is surface. There is nothing below the surface. He's nothing. And then he starts talking about that... What he wants to do is take a giant eraser eraser and rub out everything, starting with myself. Hmm. We started the movie with that voiceover. And I always think voiceovers are when you're not hiding something. You are talking directly to the audience. And that's what he starts with. I wish I could erase everything, starting with myself. Mm-hmm. And then when he kills Peter, we realize that that voiceover is happening at the end of the movie after he's killed three people. And the last one, who's someone who may have actually loved him, Mm -hmm. or at least had potential to do that. And then we get not like an actual scene of him killing him. No, you get, you hear it. We get, again, a voiceover. Right. And voiceovers are kind of the truth. So maybe the voiceover saying like, no, he was always a killer. This is the truth. Yeah. He was always evil. It wasn't just happenstance. It looks like it. And it was happenstance that got him there. But he was always this evil, dark, empty person because the voiceover is the truth. Hmm. And then the door closes as he sits yeah. after killing him, just staring there. Because they're on a boat. Yeah. And the door closes on us knowing anything about who Tom Ripley is. Right. He's nobody. Whoa. Whoa. Did that make sense? It I does. kind of made it off all of the top of my head. Because when we talk, it's when you think and it all makes sense. Yeah. I agree with you. Sounds like you wrote a novel first. (laughs) My paper says the more he lies, the more he destroys his true self. And then the rest kind of just happened. Soliloquizing. Yeah. And I think that's why this movie is, you know, this movie is not well reviewed. What? Yeah. I And I don't know if I see more into it than the movie actually puts forth. I see all of this stuff there. Or maybe people don't look into it as much. I don't know what it is, but it's not particularly well-reviewed. And I think it's so well-constructed, beautifully acted. 
I think there is so much to these characters, even when there's nothing to them. That's even more. Yeah. <laughs> because there's nothing to Tom Ripley. Yeah. But I could talk about Tom Ripley all day long. Forever. And we kind of just did. Yeah. And the direction is beautiful. The music is fantastic. The scenes, the outfits. It's a good movie. It's a very good movie. There were some very good outfits. Oh, this is something that I wanted to talk to you about. So we're, we're done, essentially. Yeah. But what were some of your favorite outfits? Oh, see, I didn't keep notes of that. <laughs> I can't. Who was the best dressed? Uh, Meredith. I agree. Yeah. Um, I did appreciate, uh, I did appreciate Marge's like summer vacation looks. Mm. I, I like that cause that's who I aspired to be if we were in Italy at a beach house. Let's go to Italy and we'll each pick an outfit. I'm going to do one of Dickie's. Okay. You do one of those. Yeah. We'll look great. It also reminded me how, um, versatile, just like a big white shirt is. Yeah. That one scene they're all wearing giant yeah. white shirts. And there's a couple of times where she's wearing it with different things. She's wearing it like tied up. She's wearing it over a bathing suit. It just, uh, I was like, man, I should go out and buy a white shirt. It'd be like Jason Manzukis. <laughs> Is that all he wears? He only wears white Oxford shirts. Huh. Nothing else ever. Weird. Yeah. Is he like Steve Jobs? Um, I think in very, very few ways, but in that one, yes. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Well, I think we are about done for today. You know what we haven't done in a long time? Uh, what's all of our social media stuff? Uh, so you can find us on Twitter and Instagram at I-L-T-Y-S and the number two. You can find us on Facebook at I Love This You Should Too dash podcast. And if you want to send us a long form love letter, it is I Love This You Should and the number two at gmail.com. I think so. I haven't checked in a long time. Yeah, send in that fan mail. Yeah, we love hearing from you guys. And we love hearing all your thoughts after the fact. And you know what else you should send us? Money. <laughs> yeah, please send us all your money. <laughs> that should be our thing. If you want us to do a, a movie that you like, I don't know, just pay us. We'll do it. <laughs> we have no sponsorship. No. We make nothing from this. So uh, we are very cheap. You'd be surprised how cheap. Make us an offer. We'll probably do it. Yeah. Exactly. Okay, we'll see you next week when I reveal our next theme. And uh, oh yeah, do we know, do we get to know the theme now? No, because I haven't picked it yet. Okay. <laughs> I was so so ahead, and then I just kind of fell off the rails. But I have a few on my list, and um, I'll just see kind of what goes with what, and uh, what we want to do for the week after. Yeah, two things of the fortnight next week, and then. Yes. Big, Big preview. Watch. Yes. See you next week, everybody. Bye.